0: Don't touch that dial. Coming up, a radio program called Radio Disclosure. Are you curious about UFOs? Are you interested in the subject of flying saucers? If you are, this radio show is definitely for you. Emmy Award-winning science reporter Linda Moulton Howe talks with Colonel Charles Halt. He says the Bentwater lights and craft were extraterrestrial in origin. Also dr bailey a tennessee physician who investigated a ufo encounter as well as some alien life form that appeared on the scene shortly after the sighting dr bailey also talks about his own personal encounter with the ufo and alien abduction all of this is coming up on radio disclosure so don't touch that dial h1n1 if you haven't given it much thought you need to start now go to h1n1kits.us that's h1n1kits.us look at the menu and go to h1n1 flu tracker map usa you can see exactly where the h1n1 virus is breaking out it may be in your community already you can order the flu blocker influenza kits today they contain all the necessary personal protection equipment to help guard against the spread of the influenza virus within your work home, and school environment. These kits contain fever strips, a protective N95 mask, disinfectant surface wipe, antimicrobial hand wipes, and a tissue pack. Look for our note on the top of the page that says, as advertised, on Radio Disclosure and the Amateur Radio QSO Show. That is your assurance to get the highest quality flu blocker influenza kits today. The H1N1 virus is here. So don't delay. Order your kits today at h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Emmy-winning science reporter, Linda Moulton
1: Howe.
2: On August 17, 2009, the UK Ministry of Defense released 800 more UFO documents including what they describe as the entire December 1980 RAF Bentwaters UFO file. But what I'm reporting now from the former Bentwaters deputy base commander himself is not contained in the MOD files. Over the past 30 years, the unanswered question has been, what exactly did happen between at least two dozen military personnel, unidentified aerial lights, and a triangular craft on the ground between midnight of December 26th and 5 a.m. on December 28th, 1980. Colonel Charles Halt has now gone on the record in a recent June 25th press release to state, I wish to make it perfectly clear that the UFOs that I saw were structured machines moving under intelligent control, and operating beyond the realm of anything I have ever seen before or since. I believe the objects that I saw at close quarter were extraterrestrial in origin, and that the security services of both the United States and England were and have been complicit in trying to subvert the significance of what occurred at Rendlesham by use of well-practiced methods of disinformation." Close quote. Colonel Halt served in Vietnam and Japan before being assigned as Deputy Base Commander at RAF Bentwaters in 1980. His boss and base commander was Colonel Ted Conrad, who had not been on the job very long. Their boss was Major General Gordon Williams, the wing commander of the 81st Tactical Fighter Wing at Bentwaters Woodbridge. And it is General Williams who allegedly received 35-millimeter film in two canisters on December 30th, 1980, from RAF Bentwater's Captain and Day Shift Commander, Mike Verano, who says in his own words, quote, General Williams told me directly that it was actual footage of the UFOs on the ground, close quote. By 1984, Colonel Halt was promoted to RAF Bentwater's base commander and also served as base commander at Kunsan Air Base in Korea. Later, he was director of the inspections directorate for the Department of Defense Inspector General. Charles Halt was born 69 years ago in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He received a B.A. in economics and chemistry from West Virginia Wesleyan College in 1962. A year later, he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. He was assigned to a school for maintenance engineering and became a U.S. Air Force maintenance officer for the next 17 years. Colonel Halt retired from his Air Force career in 1991, and today he manages a gated community in Stafford County, Virginia. On August 18th of 2009, I interviewed Colonel Halt about his RAF Bentwaters UFO experience what happened to him afterward, and why it has taken 30 years for him to say on the record that the lights and craft over three nights in the Rendlesham Forest in 1980 were extraterrestrial in origin.
3: Let me first say I was very naive and very trusting. It's probably putting it mildly. And I'm very unhappy, I guess is the best way to put it some of my superiors, as well as the intelligence services from both U.S. and British sources. What I saw, now keep in mind, definitely structured craft were seen on what was called the first night by three individuals, Feniston Burrows and Kabanisak. What I saw moved horizontally through the forest, avoiding trees and bobbing up and down. By that, I mean it went vertically occasionally to avoid the trees. It retreated from the forest into the farmer's field. At that time, the object was reflecting a glowing light on the farmer's house, which was on the far side of the object. The lighthouse was beyond that. There is no way the light from the lighthouse could have reflected off the farmer's house. In fact, on the tape, I was very concerned about the occupants of the house because it looked like the house was on fire internally from all the reflection on the windows.
2: And this was the early morning hours of December 28th?
3: I believe it was December 28th, as I remember, yes. And then the object that we saw was obviously under some type of intelligent control. There's no way it could have moved through the trees and done what it did and retreated into the field whenever we approached it. And it silently exploded into multiple white objects and disappeared.
2: During that period of time, Did you see a beam of light that was described as being white coming down from a glowing light? No,
3: we saw that later. Let me explain. Okay. We went out of the forest into the farmer's field. We crossed by the farmer's house. We fell into a small stream and all got wet and cold and quite uncomfortable. We proceeded a little further, and I was quite concerned about being off the base that time, that time of night, with people in uniform And let's face it, it, you know, we weren't home. It was a foreign country. We went beyond the road in front of the farmer's house into another field. And at that time, several members of the party noticed objects in the sky. that were moving strong, straight, angular movements and were multiple-colored as far as the lights. And they changed shape from elliptical to round and elliptical. And then we noticed other objects to the south, and one of them approached us at very high speed. My guess is it was three or 4,000 feet, maybe lower. I can't tell for sure. And the whole time, the lighthouse was clearly visible on the horizon. The object stopped overhead and sent down a beam. The best way I can describe it is a laser beam because the light did not radiate out like a normal light would do. It came straight down and fell on our feet, and we were quite concerned. The light was a very bright white light, probably 15, 20 inches in diameter, something of that size, when it hit the ground. It was right in front of us. It was less than 10 feet or 15 feet away.
2: What happened at that moment?
3: Uh, We stood there in awe, trying to, you know, is it a signal? Is it a warning? Is it a method of communication? What do we do? And we just stood there for, I don't know, 5, 10 seconds, maybe 15 seconds, and it was gone. I mean, it disappeared as suddenly as it appeared.
2: It is a beam of light that comes out of the light that's still up in the air, and where it strikes the ground, the beam looks like it's 15 to 20 inches in diameter?
3: Something of that. It was so shocking that, wow, at the same time, we were picking up radio signals. we had been continuously having problems with our radios on all three frequencies we were on from the WSA, the weapon storage area, and they were indicating that they were over there we could see objects in the sky over there. And I've later learned that there were some technicians from communication squadron working in the tire as well as the tower operator that observed some very strange things as far as lights and objects.
2: Were you hearing the radar tower operator describing to you and to others seeing the beam come down into the weapons? No.
3: The tire is an observation tire. I actually called the people in the control tire through the command post and gave them locations to look for something in the sky. And they called Eastern Radar. And Eastern Radar had radar surveillance and air defense responsibility for that area. And I didn't get a positive response, but at a later date when I talked to some people, they indicated some of the tire operators had seen some things, but the tapes were confiscated. I don't know. That's all secondhand hearsay.
2: And those confiscated tapes may contain what has emerged in hypnosis sessions with Jim Penniston and John Burroughs concerning the radar tower operator reporting that a white beam was coming from a light down into the weapons storage area?
3: That's certainly possible. I, you know, I, I can't comment. I don't know. But I know there's a lot of funny things happened.
2: Do you know for a fact with your own eyes that you were seeing a beam come down in the general area of the weapons storage area?
3: I could see something, yes.
2: Where you saw the light beam come down close to you was not directly into the weapons storage area?
3: No, the weapons storage area was a mile, mile and a half away.
2: So for those radio reports that were describing a beam coming from a light down into the weapons storage area, those would be other eyewitnesses who could see into the weapons storage area when you could not.
3: That's correct. There are multiple objects in the sky at that time, at least four, if not five or more.
2: Were they all white?
3: No. They changed color. and They changed shape from round to elliptical. Colors. Gosh, red, blue, and green, I think. I remember the, you know, the shock of, gosh, when the thing went overhead and the light approached us and you hear it on the tape, stopped overhead and it sent a beam down. Oh, my God, we all went into shock almost. How am I ever going to explain this? Nobody's going to believe this. This is a kiss of death for my career.
2: You actually thought that that night?
3: I certainly did.
2: When you started this interview, you said that you have been very dismayed by the comments and some of the reactions of your colleagues and superior officers. Could you elaborate?
3: Well, everybody from Gordon Williams, to you name it. it was, I played the tape the following morning for Gordon Williams and gave it to him, and he believed me. According to Gordon Williams, who took the tape in my recorder, he played it at the Wednesday morning staff meeting. They had a staff meeting every Wednesday morning. He played my tape at the staff meeting, and then said to the staff, what do we do? And the conclusion was, since nobody knew what to say, it's a Brit affair. It happened off the base. Williams actually laughed when he gave me the tape back.
2: And what you're saying is it is a Brit, meaning British, affair Yes, off the base. You knew that there was a credibility problem, but now, 30 years later, in the summer of 2009, you are going on the record saying that what you encountered at Rendlesham Forest near RAF Bentwaters and Woodbridge was of extraterrestrial origin. Can you explain today why you are clarifying that?
3: Because it was beyond the realm of anything we know, and it was intelligently controlled. Now, I will say one other thing. It's certainly possible, whatever it is, may be from another dimension. I thought of that at a later point, but it was beyond anything we know we had in place at the time, even experimentally. I mean, here's something that is too small for human habitation, that moves under intelligent control, that has the ability to change shape, and then multiple objects appear that have the capability to send down the equivalent of what I would say would be laser beams or something like that, and have a great deal of interest in what goes on at bentwaters as far as weapon storage area.
2: Colonel Hall, why do you think that 30 years after this event in Rendlesham Forest near RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge, that the Ministry of Defence in the United Kingdom would pretend to release all of the Bentwaters documents when you, I, Nick Pope, and others know that they haven't released the meat at all?
3: I don't think they ever will. When I was on Larry King, you know what I told him. He said, when do you think this will ever become public? I said, when one of them lands in Times Square or on the lawn in the White House, and they can't deny it. He and I both had a big laugh over it.
2: And what I still wonder is, why are we living such a lie on this planet?
3: I can't answer that question. I agree with you.
2: Well, some people would say that power, arrogance, and greed were the strongest motivators of the last 60 years in suppressing information about non-human intelligences interacting with the planet. Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, I certainly can't disagree.
2: And what do you think will unfold between now and 2009 and going into the future? How long will these lies be perpetuated? Until something,
3: until there's a dramatic event, which is probably an accident or I don't think you're going to get anybody from the intelligence agencies to ever come forward. Those people are afraid to death.
2: What are they afraid of?
3: (laughs) I can just say there's a very powerful force at work. Keep in mind it's a very, very small number of people. Who know? That's correct. If you'll keep in mind Eisenhower tried to get to the bottom of it, Jimmy Carter tried to get to the bottom of it, Bill Clinton tried to get to the bottom, guess what? All blocked. That's what they say.
2: So, who would be in control if presidents and prime ministers? That's
3: a question you have to answer yourself and tell me when you find out. A very select group.
2: Do you have any speculation?
3: I'd rather not comment.
2: Even though Colonel Halt is reluctant even now to confirm that the RAF Bentwaters weapons storage area contained nuclear warheads because of military non disclosure agreements, others have gone on the record to confirm. There were nuclear weapons beneath the UFO lights on December 28, 1980 at RAF Bentwaters, England.
0: We'll be back with Linda Moulton Howe on Radio Disclosure right after this. H1N1. If you haven't given it much thought, you need to start now. Go to h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. Look at the menu and go to H1N1 Flu Tracker Map USA. You can see exactly where the H1N1 virus is breaking out. It may be in your community already. You can order the Flu Blocker Influenza Kits today. They contain all the necessary personal protection equipment to help guard against the spread of the influenza virus within your work, home, and school environment. These kits contain fever strips, a protective N95 mask, disinfectant surface wipe, antimicrobial hand wipes, and a tissue pack. Look for our note on the top of the page that says, as advertised, on Radio Disclosure and the Amateur Radio QSO Show. That is your assurance to get the highest quality flu blocker influenza kits today. The H1N1 virus is here, so don't delay Order your kits today at h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. The pack Systems Induction Lights, manufactured in the USA by a severely disabled workforce, uses a unique physical principle of light generation. pack Induction Lighting is a breakthrough for professional, general, and special lighting applications. System lifetime is rated at 100,000 hours, or about 20 years, based on 5,000 burning hours per year. With a failure rate of less than 10%. Lightpack offers substantial savings in direct maintenance costs as well as indirect costs. Lightpack offers lighting solutions that provide a better quality of light with a 66% energy savings, also lasting up to five times longer than standard lighting options. Lightpack's quality shines through with their standard 10 year warranty on all products. Call today for your free demonstration. Go to their website, lightpacksystems.com. That's lightpacksystems.com, spelled L-I-T-E-P-A-K-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S, lightpacksystems.com. Something new at Radio Disclosure. We have been collecting items of interest, something that you might want. And once a month, we are going to have a drawing and give away some of these items of interest. Now, if you'd like to get your name in the hat, write us an email. Go to radiodisclosure.com. That's radiodisclosure.com. Shoot us an email and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, tell us that uh, you're interested in the items of interest. We're going to do a drawing once a month, and several people that listen to Radio Disclosure are going to get something really cool. We look forward to hearing from you. Go to our website, radiodisclosure.com, and send us an email. And keep listening, and tell your friends about Radio Disclosure. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Emmy-winning science reporter, Linda Moulton Howe.
2: The United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense. Released in August 2009, its second batch of 800 UFO documents in 4,000 pages. The MOD's first UFO files were released in 2008, and the third batch is expected next year in 2010. The MOD says it has now released all of its December 1980 RAF Bentwaters UFO files, along with a summary to the media generally reported this way. Quote, the U.K.'s Ministry of Defense could offer no definitive explanation for what the U.S. Air Force officers have reported seeing, but also found no evidence of any threat to the defense of the United Kingdom. Nothing had registered on radar, and there was no evidence of anything having intruded into U.K. airspace and landed near RAF Bentwaters in Woodbridge. And yet, only two months before, on June 25, 2009, Colonel Charles Halt, the deputy base commander at RAF Bentwaters in December 1980, during all the UFO phenomenon, spoke on the record in a press release, quote, I wish to make it perfectly clear that the UFOs that I saw were structured machines moving under intelligent control and operating beyond the realm of anything I have ever seen before or since. I believe the objects that I saw at close quarter were extraterrestrial in origin and that the security services of both the United States and England were and have been complicit in trying to subvert the significance of what occurred at Rendlesham by use of well-practiced methods of disinformation, close quote. Not long after Colonel Halt and the U.K. Ministry of Defense made these public releases, which appear to be contradictory... The second volume of an important trilogy by historian Richard M. Dolan, entitled UFOs in the National Security State, was also released that includes a section about the December 1980 RAF Bentwater's UFO phenomenon that reinforces Colonel Halt's conclusion that the incident was extraterrestrial in origin. Richard Dolan took 10 years to produce the first two volumes of UFOs in the National Security State, The third volume is expected in late 2010. The energy behind his decade-long work was first provoked by his astonishment about so much hidden history described in the book, Above Top Secret, the Worldwide UFO Cover-Up, copyrighted 1994 by Timothy Good. Richard Dolan said he began to sneak books about UFOs into his college history and political classes at the University of Rochester. Richard told me, quote, I got to the point where I would be going into the university and hiding my UFO books almost like a guy would hide a man's magazine to the university. He laughed. I would not want anyone to see I had a UFO book. Richard Dolan was born July 1, 1962, in Brooklyn, New York. He grew up in Brentwood, Long Island, where he graduated from high school in 1980. Four years later, he had earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in History and English Literature with a minor in Philosophy from Alfred University in Western New York after spending a portion of his junior year in 1983 studying political ideologies at Exeter College in Oxford University, England. Ten years after that, Richard Dolan had earned two Masters of Arts degrees in History in 1986 an American history and U.S. diplomacy in 1995 from the University of Rochester. So how did the budding historian switch from serious war history to one of the most politically controversial subjects on Earth, the unidentified flying objects? He got into an argument with one of his professors about the merits of a book entitled Case Closed by Gerald Posner about the 1963 President Kennedy assassination. Rich Dolan gave reasons why the book did not add up and why the truth about the assassination appeared to be covered up. When the professor accused Rich Dolan of being a conspiracy theorist, Rich realized that even academics were not objective. The professors towed certain political party lines in order to have research grants and to get tenure. Suddenly, Rich Dolan knew he did not want to be trapped in superimposed paradigms and that what he most wanted to understand and research was the long, complex, controversial history of the global UFO phenomena. Richard Dolan self-published this new second volume to maintain control on the content, and his important book can be ordered directly from his website – www.keyholepublishing.com. Think of looking through a keyhole. So again, his website is www.keyholepublishing.com. Since the second volume has come out around the same time as Colonel Holt's extraterrestrial statement about RAF Bentwaters and the MOD release of more UFO files that do not contain really sensitive and highly classified RAF Bentwaters documents and photographs, I ask Richard Dolan why the MOD would try to window dress a superficial release of UFO files as complete when they are not.
4: The MOD, going back to the 1970s and 80s, has always obfuscated, not clarified, the issue of UFOs and its relationship to it. And let me add something else here about Charles Halt and the whole issue of defense significance regarding the Rendlesham case of 1980. In my new book, Volume 2 of UFOs and the National Security State, I've got a fairly long piece on the Rendlesham case. And this is an account that I received from fellow researcher Peter Robbins, who, with Larry Warren, wrote a book on Rendlesham. And Peter and Larry interviewed Charles Halt in uh, about 15 years ago in 1993. And according to Peter Robbins, Halt admitted to them at that time privately that the beams of light from the UFO that night somehow penetrated the alternating layers of steel, earth, and concrete of the hardened bunkers, which had nuclear weapons there at the time. Ultimately, Halt told them the beams reached the secured areas where the weapons were stored, quote, adversely affecting the ordnance.
2: And this completely contradicts any assertion by the MOD now that there would be quote-unquote, no evidence of anything having intruded into U.K. airspace and landed near RAF Woodbridge? Clearly. You know,
4: back at that time, uh, Lord Hill Norton was involved. This is one of the top military legends of Britain calling for a better investigation of the Rendlesham case. And what he had said is, if this is of no defense significance, I mean, it's one or the other. Either something unknown landed in a secure area where it wasn't supposed to go, some unknown object. Or, conversely, the uh, U.S. military personnel who were there were under some kind of psychological delusion that would be so serious that it would have to be of defense significance. So, you know, his argument was it's either one or the other, and there's no way that that cannot be of defense significance. Obviously, no one believes to this day that this was some kind of psychological hallucination.
2: And not psychotronic weaponry, as some people have been trying to argue. And I would like right now, since this goes right to the heart of everything in your book and basically to the heart of Bentwaters, I would like to read briefly from the June 25th, 2009 press release by Gary Heseltine, the scriptwriter, in collaboration with retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt. And this is Colonel Halt's own words, quote, I wish to make it perfectly clear that the UFOs that I saw were structured machines moving under intelligent control and operating beyond the realm of anything I have ever seen before or since. I believe the objects that I saw at close quarter were extraterrestrial in origin and that the security services of both the United States and England were and have been complicit in trying to subvert the significance of what occurred at Rendlesham by use of well-practiced methods of disinformation, close quote.
4: Yeah, that's a very, very strong statement indeed. Trying to understand the, the structure of power and the structure of secrecy itself, this is always a difficult thing to do because none of us researchers are in on the decision-making process to clamp down on this. But what, what has happened is, Over 60 years, we've had this massively important phenomenon that a number of people have known about and decided this is too important to share with the rest of the world. One obvious reason, it seems to me, is that they're hiding not simply the reality of another intelligence here on this planet, but actually the possession of certain hardware that they obtain somehow in their possession, whether through crash retrievals or some version of hand-me-downs. But they got some technology that was so exotic that they realized they could not possibly want to share this with the rest of the world at this time. In circa 1950, there was a Cold War going on. There were concerns within the United States over Soviet espionage, stealing atomic secrets, and so forth. If the United States did not want to share atomic technology, clearly we must assume The United States would not want to share something as exotic as alien technology. So what would they do? Well, I think what logically they would do is gather together a team of top individuals to decide how the technology gets passed off to private industry for research. Another person decides how bad the public panic might be. Another person might be in charge of understanding who these other beings are and so forth. And I think this is exactly what happened. It may not have been a decision by Harry Truman that this secrecy would last forever. It could very well have been a case where he might think, we'll revisit this in a few years and decide at that time what our strategy will be. But the problem with a secret like this is that it develops its own momentum, its own profitability. It becomes, in a sense, a goose that lays golden eggs because you've got this technology that eventually certain genius scientists are going to study these materials long enough They may not be able to replicate it exactly, but they may get some very nice ideas indeed. Improvements on integrated circuits or development of laser technology or high tensile fibers or what have you. And so their incentive then becomes nil for wanting to give this secret up. They have no incentive. Forgetting the topic of UFOs for a moment, let's just look at the structure of power in the world in general, and what we can see is a kind of silent transformation of the structure of power in which privately dominated groups have gotten their hooks into public structures, public institutions. And this is exactly what has happened within the UFO topic. The secret has gone private. It's not so much classified any longer, I think, as it is proprietary. And that makes the secrecy even more profound. You know, individuals who work in the government come out of private finance and private industry, and they go back to that world when they're done. It's a revolving door. So, for example, if I, as a four-star general, were to work with you, a major defense contractor, and we share this technology, and your corporation holds on to this technology, when I retire, I get hired as a senior vice president, and I make a lot of money, and we've got all these great ground-floor investment opportunities. So that's how the world of non-UFOs and the world of UFOs works. That secrecy has twisted and transformed our world in such a profound way. Keeping the secret has involved a tremendous amount of money. For example, let us assume that there is a research and development program in place to study this technology. Well, clearly it has to be hidden from Congress. It's got to be hidden from every form of legal structure that we have here so that it can maintain its secrecy. And indeed, I was told by one very well-placed source that the cost of physical security in all of its aspects, the cost of securing the secret was seven to eight times the amount of the cost of actual scientific research and development.
2: Hmm. What would you speculate is the fundamental reason for why there seems now to be sort of this perpetuation of a policy of denial about something so fundamental as we're not alone in this universe and there are other intelligences interacting with our planet.
4: My own opinion is that there are many layers and levels of why this secret is so profoundly important to them. But one practical one, I think, is that, just as you say, it's such a fundamental truth By revealing this truth, the United States president, Barack Obama, were to say that UFOs are real and apparently alien. This is not something where he can just make his statement and then go away. There is going to be massive follow-up and investigation of that reality. One of the obvious questions that's going to come up, no matter how brain-dead and comatose the U.S. media as a rule has been, There's going to be something that's unavoidable, and that unavoidable question is how the hell did the U.S. media miss this for 60 years, and how did the U.S. and global academic communities miss this for 60 years? And investigating those questions, that's only the tip of the iceberg, but that gets into an incomplete array of illegality and manipulation of what is supposed to be institutions that answer to the people. So that's one thing right off the bat. In other words, the truth is so fundamental that the lie has had to be just as fundamental to deal with it. Now, there may be something even more profound behind this. We do, after all, have the presence of other intelligences that are here. Who are these other beings? Are they here to help us? Are they here to hinder us? Is it a bunch of factions that are out there? Are we, in fact in the midst of a silent cold war and don't even know about it. There could be a lot of things that, if the public were to know, might be seen as destabilizing, at least in terms of the stability of the current political structure. And that's always something that's important.
2: But if destabilization is always the argument on the part of authorities and governments, then doesn't it mean that those in authority are always going to be perpetuating a policy of denial into the future as far as they can go because they don't want to deal with the consequences?
4: Yes, absolutely.
2: Once you see that, then you say, we are on a planet that is living a perpetual lie. I
4: think one other reason why this is such an important secret for them to keep has to do with short-term by short term, I'm guessing 20, 30 years, economic repercussions. So, for instance, let us assume that the UFO secret comes out somehow. All right, so now we're going to be asking, well, what's the power plant of these flying saucers? They're obviously using something really nifty, better than our petroleum. So whatever it is, whether it's uh, energy from the vacuum or some other source that's phenomenally impressive, That will do things to the current petroleum industry. Then there's the electronics industry and steel industry. You can go on and on here. Now, you can easily argue that in the long term, properly handled, these new technologies would be a revolutionary benefit
2: to mankind
4: and the world. You could certainly make that case. But in the short term, 10, 20, 30 years, they would portend to be very economically destabilizing. Who knows what would come out on the other end of all of this. In other words, I think what it would bring some kind of disclosure or openness on us, it would bring a great deal of uncertainty. And I'm sure that those individuals who've got their grip around the tail of this tiger, they know that if they let go, there's a lot of unpredictability up ahead, and I don't think they want that. They want control.
2: What do you think it would take To leverage open the truth about non-human intelligences interacting with the planet, no matter what the consequences, letting the chips fall where they may.
4: Well, I believe that there's a paradox here. Releasing the UFO secret is both impossible and also inevitable. It's really both. It's impossible in the sense that there's no motivation for those secret holders to give it up. No motivation that I can see. However, the fact is that we are living in the most revolutionary period in all of human history. There's nothing that comes close to the period of time that we are in right now. We are on a tightrope. If we get to the the other side of this tightrope, we're going to be in for the wildest ride. We're in the midst of such technological innovation and change and transformation. We're going to be having intelligent computers, common probably in less than another generation. We are in the process of probably reinventing who we are biologically. We've cracked the human genetic code. We are on the verge of reinventing ourselves. It's a significant, major event. And so what I believe is that at the end of this process, in another 20, 30 years at the most, our society is going to look so completely different than it does now. Think about what we've gone through in the last 20 years where we go from basically no internet to a world of absolute total connectivity in which, you know, in your hand you could carry a little piece of machinery that could contain entire libraries worth of data, entire musical libraries, video archives, and online streaming and everything else in your little hand. And so we've gone... From a century, we've gone from horses pulling carts to the world that we have now. So we're not going to stop. And clearly, in such an unstable, revolutionary, transformative period, I am convinced that something is going to happen. And I don't know what the trigger will be, but something is going to happen that's going to force this issue open.
2: Rich, why do you think that there has not been straightforward non-human putting themselves down in all of the countries in both hemispheres very straightforwardly, let's say, in the last two or three hundred years?
4: Well, this is a great question, and unfortunately, all I can do is speculate based on the history of sightings and encounters that I know about. One thing that I know is that there is a long history of confrontation between our military, that is the U.S. military, as well as militaries of other nations, of confrontation between those militaries and these UFOs. In other words, there are attempted jet interceptions. There are occasionally cases where jets have fired missiles at these objects. We know this happened. We have the documents to prove it. So there's been trouble in paradise, so to speak, That's one issue right there. So, does that mean, like, who are the good guys here? Uh, It's hard to say. Are they the good guys or are they the bad guys? But there is some form of confrontation going on. This is something that any kind of true disclosure of UFOs must confront, is why do our militaries seem to be fighting them? I don't know the answer to that. It certainly could be that they are observing us. It seems to me that we're at a point in our history in which we must be intensely interesting to them. By them, I mean any intelligence, any group that has the ability to come to look at Earth right now. Our species has been probably in their world all along, but we've been asleep. But now we're at a point in our history where we are about to leap into their world. We're about to wake up. And so they must know this. I cannot see any scenario in which they don't know this. So my feeling is there's going to be an announcement. There's going to be some kind of event, something within, I would predict, 20 years from now. I have friends and colleagues in this field who think it's going to be much sooner than that. But I think 20 years is a reasonable guess. Why they haven't done it up till now, the only thing that I can point to is perhaps the um, possibility of excessive... Social disruption, or the fear of social disruption by those human groups, why the ET groups or the alien groups don't do this? This is something I don't know.
2: And, Rich, how is it possible that over at least sixty years since World War II, that media institutions such as the New York Times and the Washington Post have been so successfully blocked by the U.S. government from seriously doing any investigation?
4: To get what you want, you control the media. Since World War II, we also know for a fact that the New York Times, Washington Post, CBS, Time Life, the major media of the United States have had a close working relationship with the United States Central Intelligence Agency. We know this. There's been some very excellent journalistic work that has laid it out. We also know that the same type of relationship exists with the CIA and American academia there have been some very good academic studies detailing the relationship of the CIA with for example Yale University was one very excellent case study on that but there are others you don't get to be that news anchor unless you have learned through years of hard experience what is appropriate and what is not appropriate for you to say and to think As George Orwell said, the best kind of censorship is the censorship that you do to yourself that you don't even know about.
2: And that explains all of the sarcastic laughter on TV news that should be investigating, not laughing.
4: I had a very, very candid discussion a couple of years ago with a news producer at NBC. I said, look, NBC could be doing so much more. And he looked at me and said, look, I know, I know, I know. He said, but we are owned. By General Electric Rich. And when he said that, he shrugged his shoulders. He said, we're owned by GE. What else can I do? I mean, he knew the score. He understood that his corporation was not a truly independent corporation, and that the corporate mentality which permeates American news... There are many journalists out there who work within that large structure who really do want to do true investigations... But they can't. They're not able to because the system that they work for prevents them from doing that.
2: So when do you think that the United States of America sees being a constitutional republic as we thought we lived in?
4: Well, I think it happened, it's the way you cut a salami, slice by slice by slice. (laughs) So when does it stop being a piece of salami and you just got these little pieces? I don't know. It went by degrees. You could say it happened a century ago when the Federal Reserve Bank inserted its way into the structure of power of this country. But what really happened was that the National Security Act of 1947 created an institutional structure that reinvented the American government formally and finally. It gave the CIA carte blanche to do things that any normal American would have said, what? We can't be like that. And yet, this has been our history for the past six decades.
2: I would like to return to a paragraph from your book, and it was your sentence by 1990. It looked as though at least some UFOs were operated by entities, not of our human civilization. I am curious, after 10 years of working on these two large and important volumes, What has convinced you the most that we are dealing with entities not of our human civilization?
4: You go all the way back to the 1940s and 1950s, and we're dealing with reports of technology that is as inexplicable today as it was back then. Objects that, according to reports that we have of objects that did zigzags in the sky near military
2: bases. And 90-degree angles.
4: (laughs) Exactly, in the 1940s. That could stop in midair and then take off with instant acceleration. Now, I'd like to know what can do that. And guess what? So did American intelligence analysts. They wanted to know. They looked into this matter in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and 70s, and they never stopped looking at it. And periodically, things would leak out. Reports would come out. We know that reports came out in the 1940s that said, this appears to be an interplanetary phenomenon. That was the word that they used back then. And in the 1950s, the issue came to a head, and with many, many analysts we know, concluding that this was an extraterrestrial phenomenon, and so on through the years. My feeling is that this cannot be explainable as simply deep black technology, because if it is, then I need to know, we all would need to know, why are our jets chasing them for 60 years, <laughs> all right? It's one thing to say, well, we're, tr- we're testing your defenses, okay? I mean, you might hypothesize that. But for 60 years? Let's get real here. You know, there is evidence that the phenomenon involves non-human entities because we've got an enormous, an enormous mass of witness testimony who said, I was taken by beings that were not human. Right. Got a lot of that, Okay. There's at least something there to delve into, and researchers have done this. So to just say, oh, it's, it's classified technology, this is absurd. There's so much more going on here. and The data leads, in my view, to an extraterrestrial phenomenon. There's one UFO case. It's a famous one that has never left my consciousness as possibly the most significant UFO case that we have. And it's not the Rendlesham case, although I think that that's right up there. The case that I'm thinking of would be the 1976 Iranian jet fighter incident, Mm -hmm. the case that took place over and near the city of Tehran. This was back in the days of the Shah, when uh, Iran was an ally of the United States. And the reason I feel that this is such a critically important case, and that I think any skeptical person who looks into this case is going to really think twice, the reason is that the case itself is utterly spectacular, in that we have... U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency documents describing in detail two F-4 fighter interceptors in a row scrambled by the Iranian Air Force sent in to investigate an object that the whole city of Tehran was looking at, this bright object displaying all kinds of bizarre lights coming out of it. In each case, that phenomenon disabled the electronic systems of the F-4 fighter jets as they approached at a range of 25 nautical miles. In one case, the pilot was literally on the verge of pressing a button to fire a missile at the object when his missile system went offline. Now, it's also important because of the level of the testimony after the fact. One of those pilots, who later became a general, spoke at length about that experience. And we have further confirmation of this case through data from what are known as the DSP satellite system. That is the... Defense Support Program, DSP. This is a U.S. military program that has a series of geosynchronous satellites in place, one of which detected a UFO over the city of Tehran at exactly the time and date of the incident. So, in other words, we have a separate confirmation. This is something that I've included in my book. And then you've got an event that we have to explain. What object in 1976? can disable the electronic systems of what were then some of the the top-of-the-line best fighter jets in the world, F-4s were outstanding in their day. That could do that. Was that a Soviet technology? Can anyone honestly say that the Soviet Union was playing games over Tehran airspace at that time? No one seriously entertains this idea. So if not them, then whom? This is a question that any responsible historian, any responsible military historian, has to look at, and they have ignored it for, what is it, 33 years. This case has been ignored by conventional mainstream historians and analysts.
2: Because our government and other governments with inside knowledge did not want media or researchers to pay important attention to a case that would prove non-human intelligence over Tehran.
4: Absolutely. This is technology that, no matter how you look at it, is revolutionary. What can do such a thing in 1976?
2: That's an incredible event. In this new global structure of power, lies, policies of denial, are what support the structure. How long can this go? How long could this planet sustain such a huge global lie when there are all these other forces of truth that are pushing against the power structure of lies.
4: That is the $64,000 question. How long can it go? And the thing that I ask myself frequently is, is one outcome inevitable over another? So is it inevitable that that global structure will impose a global totalitarian system? Or is it inevitable that the forces of freedom will prevail? I don't really know if we have the answer to that. My feeling is that this is a struggle that is not over. It's not done. We can see that the lines have been drawn. There is a major push to create a global police state. It's underway. Anyone who's not seeing it is not looking. But there is also, it's not hard to see the other side either. There are many millions of people who see the truth, and they are speaking out and they're fighting. So where this will end up, I don't know. I think the other factor that's going to play into this is our ever-evolving technological revolution that's going on right now. You know, people in uh, Tehran, we just heard all about how Twitter was transforming the nature of the Iranian government's (laughs) handling of the recent election there and all the riots that were going on.
2: And isn't it hugely ironic that the computer technology in its speed of evolution since the uh, 1940s onward is probably tied directly to the retrieval of extraterrestrial technology out of extraterrestrial craft, as described by Lieutenant Colonel Philip J. Corso?
4: My feeling is that the possession of alien technology gave us quite a bit of a boost. If and when something goes down, if and when, let's say, a U.S. president makes a statement, we've got to remember that this is not necessarily a full or even truthful disclosure. We have to remember this. If you
0: like hearing the Earth Files report on Radio Disclosure, be sure and drop Linda Moulton Howe an email. She wants to hear from you. Her email address is earthfiles at earthfiles.com. That's just simply earthfiles at earthfiles.com. Be sure and drop her an email and let her know you're listening to her Earth Files report on Radio Disclosure. That's earthfiles at earthfiles.com. In addition, Linda's website is just simply earthfiles.com. That's earthfiles.com. If you're the decision maker for any form of outdoor lighting, you're going to want to listen to this. The Light Pack Systems Induction Lights, manufactured in the USA by a severely disabled workforce, uses a unique physical principle of light generation. This lamp system is therefore classified in a new family of sources the Light Pack Induction Lamp Systems. Lightpack induction lighting is a breakthrough for professional, general, and special lighting applications, not only because of its high luminescence and efficiency, but especially because of its unprecedented lifetime. System lifetime is rated at 100,000 hours, or about 20 years, based on 5,000 burning hours per year, with a failure rate of less than 10%. With this unmatched durability, Lightpack offers substantial savings in direct maintenance costs as well as indirect costs induction lighting is relatively new in the united states but it's proven technology developed in europe over 20 years ago Therefore, claims of durability is based on real-world empirical data, as opposed to estimated design life provided by competitive lighting technologies such as LED. Lightpack Systems was founded on the principles of green solutions for modern lighting through strong partnerships with the U.S. military, the University of Central Florida, and several national energy service companies. Lightpack offers lighting solutions that provide a better quality of light with a 66% energy savings also lasting up to 5 times longer than standard lighting options light quality shines through with their standard 10 year warranty on all products call today for your free demonstration go to their website lightpacksystems.com that's lightpacksystems.com spelled l i t e p a k s y s t e m s lightpacksystems.com Something new at Radio Disclosure. We have been collecting items of interest, something that you might want. And once a month, we are going to have a drawing and give away some of these items of interest. Now, if you'd like to get your name in the hat, write us an email. Go to Radiodisclosure.com. That's Radiodisclosure.com. Shoot us an email. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, tell us that uh, you're interested in the items of interest. We're going to do a drawing once a month and several people that listen to Radio Disclosure are going to get something really cool. We look forward to hearing from you. Go to our website, radiodisclosure.com and send us an email and keep listening and tell your friends about Radio Disclosure. Well, our guest is Dr. Bailey, and uh, he's got a story to tell. At least I have heard this story or parts of it, um, and I, you know, it's disturbing. It really is, because you, you stop and think about how in the world could this happen to someone or a group of people just you know innocently sitting in their homes. But if we think about it, go back a ways, there's a story of the little green men up near Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and that mm-hmm. was a situation where folks were minding their own business. And like the Creedence Clearwater Revival song, it came out of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a shootout with police on that one. But this this is a different story. Uh, Dr. Bailey, tell us a little bit about this. Where, where did this happen?
1: Uh, well, let me say first, uh, hi, Ted. And uh, this happened in 1996 in Orlando, Tennessee. And uh, until you called and reminded me, I... <laughs> Pretty much had forgotten the story as far as wanting to talk about it, but you know, I think it—I think it really deserves to be mentioned because uh, I think there's a lot of people that are undergoing similar situations and uh, are just too afraid uh, to talk about it for ob- obvious reasons. Pardon me, a little demo work I had earlier. Uh, what happened is uh, one Sunday afternoon, I was in my basement. And I had a TV down there and was listening, you know, just to the regular news that comes on at night. And this was a local news station uh, out of uh, Nashville, Tennessee, Channel 5. And as a matter of fact, they documented some of the events that happened. So that tape is available. Uh, I want to say around June, July, but I could be off a few months. The year was 1996. As I said, I was watching this TV show, uh, the local news show, and uh, I saw uh, a picture of a man sitting on his back porch, and uh, one of the reporters was asking him what had happened to his dog, and I heard the statement, well, I think an alien bit it. And so as soon as I heard that, I immediately just turned channels, and I said to myself, This is the reason people don't believe in the subject matter, because we have kooks that are out there making fun of it, you know. (laughs) All right. Uh, So it was, uh... but the next night, uh, this was on a Sunday night, so the next night, Monday afternoon, the story repeats itself on the TV, except this time it had a little different light uh, it, should, it It had shown the story in a completely different light, and it got my attention. and I thought there must be something up with this. Uh, so I uh, called a friend that was interested in the same subjects, UFOs uh, and whatnot. And I decided, uh, well, you know this this would be good to go out and investigate, and I'll have to admit, I'm not an investigator. Uh, but you know, as a as a physician, you you do have a certain way of looking at evidence, and I'm not saying that I can look at it any better than anybody else. But you you keep a certain uh, open mind, but at the same time, you want to be realistic. If you know what I mean,
0: I, I would I would think that a physician is required today, especially by law. And has been for a long time. You have to document everything. You have to keep impeccable sure. paperwork. So you're you are a trained observer.
1: I mean, uh Well you, that that would be one way of, of saying it. And and I'll have to admit that I did not take a notebook out there. I didn't think we were even going to get near the place. Uh the story the the second story on the air, the T V show uh the T V news, I keep saying show, I think news and show are the same, but uh it uh It just got my attention in such a way that I thought, I've got to check this out. And I didn't want to go out as an investigator. But uh, I took a friend along with me. And uh, we were, as a matter of fact, it was on Tuesday. So this would have been, the event happened on Saturday night. And so this would have been a few days after the event had just happened. And uh, I had some time off, and I said, let's uh, let's run out there. It was during the day. And I said, let's run out there and just check this out. And, uh, you know, taking somebody with you uh, sometimes helps you get maybe the parties separated, and one can get one side of the story and the other can get the other side of the story. And so uh, going out there, we had to find the, uh, the place. And, uh, you know, he lived out in the country, and uh, so we... Uh, we drove out to Orlando and the first uh I guess you could say the first little grocery store out in that area we stopped in and said do you know this particular person and uh do you know where he lives and uh the gentleman that owned the store said yes I uh, know him very well we go to church together and he uh, uh he lives down this road and you can go down here and turn left and so forth and so we uh said thank you very much I said do, do you have any uh opinions about what he what has been reported on the news and he said, well, the only thing I can say is, I'm a good friend, and when we would go out there to visit the dogs, the two young dogs he has, I think they're Labrador Retrievers, one is a golden color and the other is black. And he said, they're. Uh, and I mentioned that because I want to talk about the dogs later and what happened to them. So uh, he said, I, I noticed that every time I went out there, this is the manager of the store, said that the dogs would just jump up and they're just all over you. You know, they're just a little over a year old. So and they're friendly, friendly dogs. Right after this event happened and uh, the dogs just were lethargic, didn't move much, and were just uninteresting. So uh, I thought that was interesting. You know, we've got a little bit of evidence that supports this, even though, you know, because newscasters will go out for a story and they, they try not to make any judgments on it. They just want to get... What has happened and then present it to the public. And, we, and I understand that. But uh, what we did is we ended up in a church parking lot near where he lived and saw a woman parked there getting ready to leave. And we rolled out our window and asked her if she could help us because we were having trouble on the last road getting to the location. Because you've got to understand, that, uh, he was living in a soybean field. And so it's not so clear-cut and dry as to get directions from people who live, you know, way out in the country. Uh, so she said, uh, well, here, here's where he lives. He's down the road. And by the way, there were two UFOs that my daughter and I personally saw. So I believe what happened to him may have happened. So that got us even more excited.
0: So these people, the, the, this lady had actually seen some things, her and her daughter,
1: had, Actually, yeah. It did see some uh, UFOs, something that she, didn't, she couldn't explain. And other uh, friends of hers also saw the same thing.
0: Well, it seems like there's pockets of these things, you know, when they occur. Uh, and, and I'm wondering, did, was she able to give you any kind of description at all as to what it was that they saw? Or
1: We were more concerned about finding his location, I and uh, we thanked her for the directions and proceeded. And uh, when we pulled up to the trailer... Uh, it was real close to the road. It was a paved road, and there were some large houses across from it. And uh, in the back of his house, like I said, was a large soybean field, but he had quite a bit of room out there. And uh, there was a neighbor next door to him. And so uh, as we were pulling up, and, and, of course, we did get information from the store manager that the veterinarians had just left over there, and they wanted to examine the dogs and so uh or or they already examined the dogs and and had left, and so we when we pulled up, we saw in his driveway, we saw somebody pulling away, and I thought that maybe that was the the vet that had just left, possibly or somebody else, and so we knew that he was being inundated, as we later found out, with all sorts of uh phone calls, people threatening threatening him, and uh you know calling him a quack and a stupid. You know, a person, and you yeah, know, all you know, you know, sorts of uh, I, criticism. The, people.
0: The, the thing, the thing that I, I was going to say is, <laughs> I, I don't UFO. I don't, I don't understand, and that is the, the ridicule. Uh, you know, and this is a real problem because people have an experience of some sort, and as legitimate as it may be, um, it doesn't take much ridicule, along with the fear of what you've just experienced. To cause you to just shut up.
1: Exactly. You know, and, and I, go ahead. And I didn't want to judge anything. I wanted to just find out. It was it was more curiosity on my part. As I said, I'm not a UFO investigator and don't claim to be one. But I needed to go out there just personally for myself. I wanted to find out, you know, if this could be the one person of all the cases I'd heard that possibly did have something happen. And so I guess from that standpoint, uh, we saw him heading toward the door. As soon as we pulled up, we saw him heading toward the door and his wife right in behind him. So we knew right then this is not going to be easy. And so uh, his wife did come back out, and she met uh, uh, met me just as I got out, got out of the car. And so she said, uh, I'm sorry, but he's tied up. And we haven't had much sleep. And since this event has happened to us, we're, we're just not interested in any more, you know, people coming out. And I said, "Ma'am," I said, "I can certainly understand that, and I'm not here to, uh, you know, question, uh, you know, anything other than I would just like to meet your husband and talk to you and him about uh, what had happened that night." And I think she realized that I wasn't a threat, and uh, she went and got her husband, and they came out and started to warm up to us and uh we'd been there for i guess from the time we got there it was about two hours and i didn't expect to stay that long but what we found out in those two hours still sends chills up my spine i'm you know just uh And, you know, a lot of people can question whether this event really happened or it's his imagination, but what I want to share with you now is some of the things that I actually heard, saw, and uh, uh, what what his wife described independently of him and what he described all seemed to match up. When we later got together, we, you know, like I said, my friend that that went with me, I'll call him Jerry. And uh, so Jerry was... uh, you know, asking questions. He had two young boys, and they were there also. And so we were talking to all of them. And uh, so I asked her to, you know, or I actually asked him. I said, "Well, you know, can you tell us from the beginning what happened?" And so this all, and I don't know if you need to take a break here or
0: not, Ted. Um, I, I, I'm doing just fine. I'm on the edge okay, of my chair. Okay, well, so, but I'm going to say I gonna, something. You know, though. what I was going to say? Well, is, well you know, one thing, let me, let, me, me. Let, me, let me make a comment here, though, and that and that is this. And, and that, that is, why in the world, from what you're describing, these are folks that live way out in the country. You say they live way out in the middle of a, of a field, a, a soybean field. What, in this day and time, what is there to gain from somebody like that For just manufacturing a story when probably their very background these are church-going people their very background would prohibit them from probably even talking about it
1: well that's a good point and uh you know there's a lot more to this story and there was actually three visits that we went out over a period of uh three months and uh uh my last attempt to find out whether they were in this for the money or not. Actually, I used a uh, uh, a, a type of baits that, and it wasn't necessarily bait that would, uh, you know, I don't, I don't mean I set the bait, set bait for them to uh, take, but I did. I, I offered them financial money for uh, uh, interest in their story, and that since they've been through hell and back, that maybe they could profit a little bit from this but they weren't interested and that was the last visit but i'm i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself let me uh... let me back up and start from the very first time that he described the story to me emily's wife and and again let me just preference this by saying we later found out that uh, uh... he had a small criminal charge uh... on him that uh... I don't think really, I think back when you when you look back at somebody's background, I think one little small event can destroy the whole story just because somebody. But, you know, this is what makes people normal. You know, they've lived through this. He has two sons. He has is, he is, uh, done uh, carpentry work on the side, and he's also an auto mechanic. And he's just doing the best he can for his family. But uh, nevertheless, I wanted to mention that because, I know if some serious investigator wanted to follow up, they may run across that uh, I think there was uh, some theft that occurred back when he was real young. You, you know what I'm saying. Uh, uh, I don't know the particulars on it, but I did you know, and again, I researched as much as I could with with what I had. and uh, I got the uh, uh, there's also a uh, police report. Uh, that's somewhere on the internet I, 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 the last time I downloaded it, I never looked for it again. this you got to remember this has happened more than thirteen years ago, and uh, you know I really it, it there's nothing in this for me. I certainly don't want anything out of it, although I did put that bait before them. I was just trying to find out if they would take it. I don't think I would have followed through with anything like that, but it was just I, I needed to know. Uh You know, if they were interested in financially uh you know getting money from this, and uh, they weren't they were they were ready to give this up. I, I want to draw that out so that you can understand they weren't motivated by money. They wanted people to leave them alone. the radio The big radio stations in town had had started making fun of them the day after this happened, so it was all over the local radio. And uh, it upset him, and uh, it upset his wife. And they were a, a good, upstanding people that were just trying to do like everybody else out there, make a living and provide for their children. And they certainly didn't want to bring this upon their children. They were ages—I'm uh, going to say nine and six, uh, two boys. So he said, "Like, uh, and, I, and like I say, I don't know if you need to take a break, but l- let me uh, let me go ahead and start with the story." The best way I can tell it, and if you need to edit or anything, then, you know, go ahead and do that.
0: All right, and, and in the meantime, if you have uh, problems with that telephone, I know I'm hearing a little cracking sound every right. once in a while. You may be losing your battery there, so uh,
1: well, if it disappears, uh, if it does, we'll, we'll, we'll just have to pick up the conversation. All right, go ahead. Uh, so uh, I'm going to use his real first name because it is out there. I just don't remember the first the last name right off the bat. But his first name was Glenn. And Glenn told me that Saturday nights, he'd had a long day, him and his wife wanted to retire and watch a movie. And you got to remember they lived in a trailer. Uh, and so the boys were asleep, and he remembered putting the movie in. But he doesn't remember watching the entire movie. The first thing he remembers is hearing this banging sound up under the trailer. And he knew the dogs like to, uh, you know, chase small animals and things such as that. And he assumed that, well, the dogs are uh, supposedly have cornered something like a possum, and it's, you know, they're banging around up under the trailer. And so he kind of dozed off again and heard that noise again and thought, well, there's something going on, so I better go outside and check and see what's going on. And uh, so he opens the door to the back deck. Uh, The deck's about, I would say, 12 by 16. Just an average size deck that you would have on the back of a trailer. And it sets up off of the ground about... uh, I would say two to two and a half, three feet. So as soon as he opens the back door, he notices he called it a creature that had the trunk that looked like maybe an elephant trunk sticking up over the banister, moving around. And when he saw that, it scared him. He ran inside to get a flashlight so he could investigate a little bit better. And when he came back out, this... uh, creature, as he calls it, uh, he used uh, his fist to to try to demonstrate exactly what had happened. And and as he looked to the left when he opened the door for the first time on the deck, the creature kind of poked its head up. If the fist represented the head and the arm represented this creature's neck, it kind of uh, poked up and looked over the banister at him and then started moving around. So after getting the flashlight, he comes out. He uh, shines the light on this uh, creature, and it starts going into a uh, glowing ball like a white light and then moving around in the yard erratically. So then he goes back in the house and gets his shotgun. At this time, the boys were still inside the house, and I'm not sure exactly where the wife was, but I think she was. She knew something was going on and was probably just awake in the bedroom. Uh, when he took the shotgun, <clears throat> excuse me. When he took the shotgun and pointed at the creature again, it went into a ball of glowing white light and reappeared instantaneously on the other side of his yard. And there's no creature that we know of that can move that fast. So uh, his sons come out, and, and at this time, too, the there is a red laser coming from what they say was a UFO glowing above a radio tower that was located, uh, I don't, I'm going to say, a half a mile. You could see the blinking red light, but it was within a half a mile or a mile of their house. And it was shooting, now it was closer to their house when they saw it on another occasion, it was over the tower. And uh, if you could locate that date and get those transmitter logs, I'm sure you'd find out that they had some sort of dis- disruptive interference in their uh, broadcast that night. But again, That's this a is good possibility. Two or three in the morning. So uh, this laser that he called it, this red laser, was tracking the creature as it moved. And uh, when his sons came out, they noticed the laser hit their father's neck. And he put the gun, and he walked back in the house, put the gun down. He describes it as like he felt like his heart was about to explode out of his chest. And the entire backyard was lit up like it was daytime. And they could still see this red laser.
0: We'll be right back with our guest, Dr. Bailey talking about the UFO incident in Orlinda, Tennessee, right after this. As a shortwave radio listener, you know there's no such thing as a good indoor antenna. If you're looking for an antenna that allows you to pull in those distant signals and also gets rid of the atmospheric noise, you need a good outdoor antenna. But in a lot of cases, folks can't have an outdoor antenna. Now you can. Trans World Antennas is the name of the company. The website is transworldantennas.com. Go to their site and check out the TW2010, or the 4040, or the 8080 for that matter. These are all antennas that will increase the sensitivity of your shortwave radio. It gets the antenna that receives outside of the indoor environment, away from electrical noise, the pops and cracks and things that go on inside a building, And they hide. The TW2010 just literally disappears wherever you put it. Folks don't see it. And it's a good antenna for your receiver. It's a good match for any shortwave radio. If you're having difficulty pulling in those distant signals, or if you're looking for a portable antenna that you can take with you wherever you go, you want it to be low profile, you want it to be stealth, where you can set it up and nobody really knows it's an antenna, this is the antenna for you. Go to the website transworldantennas.com. That's transworldantennas.com and get a TW2010, a 4040 or an 8080, whichever model best suits your receiving needs. You'll be glad you did. Transworldantennas.com. H1N1. If you haven't given it much thought, you need to start now go to h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. Look at the menu and go to H1N1 Flu Tracker Map USA. You can see exactly where the H1N1 virus is breaking out. It may be in your community already. You can order the Flu Blocker Influenza Kits today. They contain all the necessary personal protection, equipment to help guard against the spread of the influenza virus within your work home, and school environment. These kits contain fever strips, a protective N95 mask, disinfectant surface wipe, antimicrobial hand wipes, and a tissue pack. Look for our note on the top of the page that says, as advertised, on Radio Disclosure and the Amateur Radio QSO Show. That is your assurance to get the highest quality flu blocker influenza kits today. The H1N1 virus is here, so don't delay Order your kits today at h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. You can transform any surface into a self-cleaning, antibacterial, antifungal, mold-free surface. Let it purify your surrounding air and protect your building interior and exterior from environmental contamination. Any germs, oils, fumes, smells or even little algae spores which land on a surface near Tidox will be remediated in minutes. Any exterior building surface we wish to keep clean needs to receive a little light and be coated with Tidox. Tidox coating destroys viruses, bacteria, odor, harmful gases, allergens, air and water pollutants and protects treated surfaces against the growth of algae, fungus and mold. For more information on how you can use Tidocs in your home or your place of business. Contact Light Pack Systems. Go to their website, lightpacksystems.com spelled L I T E P A K S Y S T E M S. lightpacksystems.com. Something new at radio disclosure. We have been collecting items of interest Something that you might want. And once a month, we are going to have a drawing and give away some of these items of interest. Now, if you'd like to get your name in the hat, write us an email. Go to radiodisclosure.com. That's radiodisclosure.com. Shoot us an email and tell us a little bit about yourself. And uh, tell us that uh, you're interested in the items of interest We're going to do a drawing once a month, and several people that listen to Radio Disclosure are going to get something really cool. We look forward to hearing from you. Go to our website, radiodisclosure.com, and send us an email. And keep listening, and tell your friends about Radio Disclosure. And now, ladies and gentlemen, back to our guest, physician Dr. Bailey, speaking about the UFO incident in Orlando, Tennessee.
1: So his, uh, you know, his sons uh, again stated this fact also that it caused him to just go in the house, put the gun up, and sit on the couch for just a second and settle down. He said it felt like a calming effect, and he didn't know he was hit by anything. It was his sons that told him later, and then when they looked at his neck, it was red. There was a red uh, blotch in that area where the laser hit him. We didn't see anything like that, but you know, if something. We didn't get there until, what, three days later, uh, so it could have cleared up. Now, uh, let's, let's move to the dogs. Um, the dogs, uh, supposedly, weeks prior to this event happening, had been dragging up small animals, like squirrels, rabbits, possums, you know, the, the small animals that you find in that, uh, indigenous in that area. And he said he'd noticed something about the animals, that they that the way they looked wasn't right. He said usually an animal is stiff, you know, and there was no rigor mortis. This animal was, had uh, looked like it was just limp, it looked like it had been compressed, um, and uh, was loose.
0: So the, these animals were probably... Stiff. These these animals were either already dead or just freshly killed. The dogs probably went out and claimed them and brought them home is what it what it probably amounts to.
1: Well, he he I don't I don't know, Ted. I mean, you know anybody can argue with that, but you got to remember it's where what I'm doing is I'm listening to him describe something that he's never seen before and he's lived out there for 20 years. Okay. So you know, I don't know. I don't go out looking for roadkill or you know dead animals. I don't have <laughs> dogs, so I really don't. I don't know. But he's saying that the animals, the dogs, used to bring up. They they didn't look anything like the animals he was bringing up. As far as when they were dead, there was something different about them. Okay, so let me move to the next point. The uh, later when he looked at the dogs, there was a scar that was on the uh, blonde uh, dog, and it was on his hind quarter. And it it looked to me like that it would be the exact place you would go in if you were going to puncture somebody to get into the abdominal aorta to get some blood. But when you look at the scar, the creature or whatever attacked his dog didn't quite get through. All it did was leave the outline. This, uh, there were two scars, uh, I would say, between um, three to two inches, two to three inches long. But when you look at the scars, they were completely, uh, what the veterinarians that examined the dogs, what they stated was there was no way that um, an injury like that, like, like they saw, could heal as quick as it did. And no scab formations. And so it went against even uh, medical science. Uh, months later, when we went to look at the dogs, we noticed that the hair did grow back through where the scar was. And usually, hair doesn't grow back through scar tissue. It's just too tough. So whatever it was that caused the two marks on those dogs, I can tell you, it, it defied anything I've ever seen. So... Uh, and the other dog wasn't touched, but I think the other dog, the reason it was also not, I think it was frightened. And so I think something happened in those dogs, just, you know, became lethargic, didn't want to play, and just laid around all day. So uh, I asked uh, his wife, at that time I think I separated and started asking his wife some of these questions, and I think uh, my friend at that time began to ask uh, Glenn uh, some of uh uh... the rest of the story what she told me then was that uh... this uh... this light that was uh... just encompassing all over the house this this event happened uh... for two i think two to three hour period just before sunrise and uh... at one point they were all huddled in a corner at the back door of their house and uh, the intensity of this field effect that they were in—I I really can't describe it. Or, all they said was it, it looked like that it was complete daylight in the middle of the day. Uh, except when you look out, you can see—you can't see, you know—certain uh, things out beyond a certain point. But everything was lit up. And uh, that morning, she woke up, and everything in the house was fried: the cell phone, the uh, TV, microwave. Anything electronic in the house was totally fried. Didn't work. To call the uh, the first thing this family did when they had this happen to them was they called the highway patrol. Yeah,
0: so who else you going to call? The highway
1: patrolman was sent out there, but he had to go to the neighbor's house to borrow the phone to call them. And uh, so that was around uh, eight o'clock. I don't think they wanted to wake the neighbors up right away, but I think they did immediately as soon as they could. They went over and used the neighbor's phone. Um. Uh, hmm. She said when, when Morton came, she saw, you could still f- feel, they described it as a feeling, this, this energy around the house and outside. And since he was a mechanic, they had about six or seven cars uh, parked. Uh, some were working, some were, you know, for clients that he would fix. And that uh, a couple of them had these large whip antennas on the back. I don't know if you're familiar with those and some regular antennas, and those antennas were moving. All of them were moving back and forth, like a vibration was moving them. And the, the car looked like, it, it's called, a, green, it's called a, a greenhouse effect inside a car when there's an energy field outside. It, it takes all the moisture and causes the uh, windows to fog. So all the windows were fogged up, and that was strange to them, I and the batteries were drained dead. So they had no way to go anywhere. They had to call, and the per- first person they call was the highway patrolman. Uh, he, he gets out there at about eight o'clock in the morning, uh, takes him down to the Tennessee Highway Patrol place, and takes his story. And his story is documented. That's this is something you can go look up. And the highway patrolman had had made a statement that was, uh, uh, you know, not not a. Uh, a criticizing statement, but made a statement that he believed that this man experienced something that night. So you have the highway patrolman thinking something happened. You have other people that were in that community that witnessed things, and probably more, but just the ones that aren't talking. And uh, so the morning that she started to, uh, oh, I have to back up and say that where the creature was standing, I wanted to look and see if there were any imprints. And it just so happened, and this is where it's going to get a little weird here now, it just so happens it looked like there was a footprint. And it didn't look like, it looked kind of like it might have been a chicken or a duck or something along those lines. You could actually see the organic, uh, the cellular structure in the webbing of the foot. Because it was in fresh mud. Was it? it was, was a, a slight? Uh, there had been a few rains before this event had happened.
0: Was it? Was this larger than a than a chicken uh, print?
1: Well, I'd say it was probably about that size, maybe a little bit bigger though. Um, I immediately want. I said, "You need to get this. We need to take it out." And we need to get it and preserve this evidence, because I said this is this is important evidence, but he said, "Look, I got a call from youfond, and they were going to come out and investigate this, and they said, "Don't let anybody touch anything now he also showed me and and he actually saw this during the time he was having this encounter with this creature he actually saw the creature on his deck moving around and, and showed me his, the creature's fingerprints, and it looked like moss on his, uh, uh, do, are you familiar with the uh, mechanics toolbox, the one that sets up about four foot high that has the chrome drawers and things? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. W- he showed me the actual fingerprints. There were only, this creature either only has two fingers and one thumb, or three fingers one time, or something, uh, you know, or somebody just didn't touch that part of it if it was human. If, it was, if, if he attempted to make this look like a real event, uh, then that would have been incredible. But he couldn't have faked the dog injuries because that, even with the veterinarian report, says there's something strange here. And here, here's the other thing that's strange that I discovered, and I don't know if anybody else discovered this, on the deck, there was a coffee, an old coffee table that was sitting on the deck. Now, I know for people that don't uh, have decks, uh, this is a, you know these are plank decks made out of pressure treated lumber, and this coffee table that was set, he described that when this creature was on his deck, it was moving around erratically on the deck, and he could see the these flashes going on. And he showed me the marks, and it looked like as if you'd taken a nickel or something where metal would rub off and scraped across, because you could see the discoloration. And I said, well, it looked like somebody could take a coin or something metal and and create those lines. he says, no, Uh, and I looked closer, and there was no indentation, and it looked like carbon residue. So uh, I convinced myself just looking at the uh, marks that it didn't look like anything that if somebody were attempting to do, then they did it with a softer object, and they actually were purposely trying to make these marks. So I'm not an investigator, but I noticed that if you ever notice how mildew collects around the base of an object sitting outside, if you move the object... You you notice that you break the seal and you can tell if an object's been moved or not. Especially this coffee table out on the deck. When I moved, I asked him. I said, "Do you mind if I move?" Because I saw the marks going through the coffee of the coffee table, and I thought, "Well, that's strange. How how would these marks end up pointing to the coffee table? Go under it and then come out on the other side in the same direction?" I thought that's that's kind of strange. So I said. Do you mind if I lift the coffee table up? When I lifted it up, I could tell that it had been lifted up for the very first time. And when I saw the mark continue through the table, chills went up my back again. (laughs) I thought, that's strange. Uh, Now, when the highway patrolman brought Glenn back, his wife, uh, uh, after the Colman dropped his uh, her husband off he went to try to get some sleep she was at the kitchen window of her trailer and looked out of it and saw this same creature stick its head up out of the ditch just right across the road it must have been no, no more than a hundred feet and so we uh, quite a bit of information that uh, particular day and uh, and like I said when we got back later we kind of compared mental notes about what one said and what the other said and it just sounded uh, like some something really happened there and uh you know i, I oh uh, let me also mention that uh mufon did go out and investigate and they asked the two boys the two boys did not tell us when we were out there at least if they did they didn't they didn't tell us what it was But they saw this creature up in a tree. We didn't ask the boys to describe it. It was their father that gave us the description. And in no way, Ted, I say this again, in no way did I go out there ever thinking that this would be anything other than a UFO that nothing else would have, you know, transpired, no alien abduction or anything like this, but... When the boys described to the MUFON investigator what they saw, the MUFON investigator told the husband, or I should say the father, that uh, this was a chupacabra. Hello.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. Okay.
5: But how would they <laughs> know so that?
1: I had at that point, I I didn't I a chupacabra. I didn't know what a chupacabra was. Oh, I did hear about it on the Art Bell show one night, but. I really didn't know that much about chupacabras.
0: Now, now the, the person that, that said this was a chupacabra, once again, repeat that again. Who was it okay, that... Okay,
1: the, the two boys, the two younger boys, were interviewed by MUFON later after we left. I don't know when. It, w- it could have been a week later. And uh, according to what the boys described, the MUFON investigator... Uh, said that uh, well, what you've seen is what we call a chupacabra.
5: Okay, I now, understand. You know, now. And, and, those, and those people, we,
1: we really—the only thing we asked the boys, because we didn't want to get them too. Uh, we didn't want to, you know, if that you got to remember it was our first visit. We felt like we were intruding, so we didn't want to be too abrupt in asking the boys too many questions. So we we never asked the boys to describe this creature. Only uh, their father did, and I think he was so scared that uh, the best description he could give was that something was looking at him over the deck, running around crazy in the yard and on the deck, and and he was, uh, to say the least, I would be uh, you know quite scared and concerned, <laughs> and especially when your uh, when your electronics fry out and uh, you know the uh, the cars batteries are all drained out this. Uh, uh, fogged up windows, uh, things like that. Uh, you know, kind of made me think that uh, you know maybe some high energy field was around that night, and uh, I don't know anything that can produce that. You know,
0: that's uh, you know, I mean, it would you know, it would be extremely disturbing, especially you know people who listen to, say, for example, the coast to coast, or they're familiar, they get exposed to this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. They may be a bit more familiar with it, but for someone that's not following it, and from what you're talking about, this
1: is... Well, that uh, was in 1996, and uh, like I say, at that time, I think you were the first person to tell me to check, that uh, referred me to the uh, Coast to Coast show. And, uh, you know, at that time, I think I did hear a show where somebody had, uh, you know, sp- Talked about chupacabras, but I really wasn't interested, uh, Ted, in chupacabras. I was interested in UFOs. That was my main interest.
0: Well, I, I guess the thing what is uh, the, these folks that are, are in living in rural Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, and and they're they're
1: just oh, wait not. A I live in rural Tennessee too. But, uh... I, I know, but I mean, <laughs> th- but these people and it, are it's not a good place. It, 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 you know, it's just like anywhere else you would go if, if it were in Kentucky, or if it were in. Uh, Upstate New York, uh, you know, people that live out in the country, uh, they tend to be, uh, uh, a little more, uh, realistic about things, uh, when it comes to, uh, what they observe. And, uh, you know, the, the, sure, sure, there are kooks out there. I don't deny that at all. But I didn't see any ulterior motive for this family to take on all of the, uh, press, the media, I mean, it was a maelstrom for the first few days. They had two major radio stations in Nashville uh, that were, you know, it was the, the hot topic of the day. Did you hear about the guy out there who saw a UFO and the aliens attacked his dog? And so that would make anybody uh, suspicious.
0: Well, I, I guess what I'm saying, if you, if you travel out to rural Tennessee and you go out into the middle of an agricultural area. You're not going to find people who know what a chupacabra is.
1: Okay, <laughs> that's not well, widespread never, never information. Heard of one, so not and, wide and widespread this, information. Uh, he tried to describe it. I asked him to describe the color. He said it was more like a greenish brown color, and uh, that it uh, was about three foot tall. And I think the thing that interested me is the. Uh, the fact that uh, when we went back later on a subsequent uh, trip, uh, one of the first things I wanted to do was look at the scars on that same dog. And uh, when I saw, here's what was strange. The uh, the dog was blonde. And in those two scars that this so-called chupacabra made, uh, uh, th- there was black hair growing through where the scar would have been. You could actually see two dark dashes on the car on the uh, on the dog's uh, uh, rear side, or not rear side, but uh, 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 you know up along the uh, lower quadrant on a human. It would be on a dog, and like I said, th- those marks were made in a in an anatomically correct way. If you were going to go in and say extract blood from the aorta, that would be where you would want to go. So I thought that was strange too. Uh, so we've got somebody that you know supposedly had witnessed and and, and experienced this ordeal for something like two to three hours, uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning. More like more like Sunday morning.
0: So I, I I mean I guess my question is what you know based on everything that you saw and everything that uh, the, the story that was told to you uh... and you've made several trips out there Did, were you ever able to reach any kind of conclusion or form any sort of opinion as to what all of that was
1: about well that's why on the on the final visit and i knew the third visit was it i wasn't going to go back out there again uh, a friend of mine who is a theatrical agent has worked for some of the big companies in hollywood you know carsey warner and and they always told me they were good friends of mine and, uh, it was a, her, she always told me, she said, look, if you find anything, she was into the strange too. Cause we used to talk about UFOs. She, she said, if you ever run across anything strange out here, she wanted to do a story, uh, on a particular camp where people were murdered. And she wanted me to get information on, you know, but, uh, she said, anytime you get a story that's got any strangeness to it, let me know. I know a person in Hollywood that would love to, uh, uh... to run with it and so that's why on the third visit you know i made that offer to them and i told her you know i know somebody who with this information you know you could benefit financially from this and they wanted nothing to do with it and uh... i have to say i did go back out there in ninety nine with another friend a different friend and we we found the trailer but there was nobody living there he, he's moved on somewhere maybe somebody did buy a story and they're waiting to make a big movie on it or something well, I, I you know i,
0: I rather doubt <laughs> that but but i you know, also uh, folks that that come public with these things uh, either either they get they're these, this total mass victim of ridicule they get totally ridiculed or uh, you know they get paid a visit and they're told you know do not share this With the general public, uh,
1: when I told his wife when we first got there, I did hear some uh, rants on the radio about that, and uh, I knew he was getting quite a bit of uh, criticism. So uh, that was, I think, another reason they they did come out to talk to us because at first I told them that I didn't. uh, I felt there was something that had happened out here. It was like I said, the second uh, news show that I saw on this. It just made me think, you know, and then he later told me that he had contacted these uh, the radio station that first aired it and kind of jumped on him for making him look like an idiot, a fool, you know. And because of the story, you know, you can take, you know, in media, you can slice it and dice it the way you want to deliver it. And so it just didn't show him in a good light. And, that, and, and that's he, really a shame he asked them to himself. run another story, but this time to make it, to show the... Uh, the other uh, parts of the story they left out. And the camera, uh, uh, Channel 5, uh, out of uh, Nashville, did film the foot imprint. As best as I can tell, they also filmed the uh, fingerprints on the uh, toolbox when they were doing the story, and that was the one I saw on the second uh, showing. So, uh, you know, like I said, if he went to all this trouble, if... And as I understand, he was, you know, he could use money. He was uh, he was telling me that things were tight and that uh, he, you know, had uh, obligations and, you know, things like that. But uh, they weren't interested financially. I do know that for a fact. Uh, whatever happened out there on that July night of uh, 1996, you know, I believe it was a real event. Well,
0: you know, I, I guess the other thing I was going to say, too, and, and not getting off the beating path, but... Uh, you, I, I spoke with you before about this, and I've shared with you some of the experiences, and we've talked back and forth. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of folks that uh, are very skeptical over the fact that uh, folks that shine lights up in the sky, powerful, just regular, you know, beam lights.
1: Well, uh, the first night we did it, we saw something.
0: Yeah, I, I, and the, and I, I, if I recall, uh, I'm not. I don't know if you were there then, but, but there was a, one particular event when after the lights had been shined in the sky a little bit, uh, there were some Air Force jets that went over. And they went over rather low. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, it's funny, and I I certainly don't want to get into my personal story, uh, but, you know, I did have one. I think one of the reasons I was interested in the UFO phenomena is because of what happened to me and my wife, and uh, I think it was about uh, six years prior to this, and uh one of the things that hit me like a ton of bricks was one morning and I won't go into what happened but the morning that I left to go find out what what that was in the field across uh the the interstate from where I lived uh I was uh my cars were all all had that fog up uh, uh thing you know going on and the batteries were drained and uh uh, that night, my wife, every time I would bring up the subject uh, of UFOs, it, my wife didn't want to hear that. She she would say when we were at parties, you know, when we were younger and stuff, she would always say, well, p- please don't talk about that because, you know, p- it might upset some people. So I never really mentioned it to her anymore. And that one night that she woke up the next morning, and the first words out of her mouth was, you're not going to believe this, but I think I was abducted by an alien. Oh, <laughs> now, uh, we had a couple over that night uh spending the night, and the dogs were barking all night. They never barked the neighbor's dogs we didn't have any dogs but uh and they barked all night long and But the first thing that we noticed i guess I guess I have led myself into this <laughs> the first thing we noticed when we woke up at about two in the morning, God, I don't know what time it was it could' have been two or three is there was a light in our room. It was so bright, there were no shadows, and I kept looking over there. We had a a pretty big bedroom with a sitting area over to the left, and I kept looking, and we had also windows uh, uh, on the other side of of the room, and normally, and the interstate's so far away that if any tractor-trailer light going down the interstate were to come in, it would be moving, you'd see the shadows. That's not what we saw, and so I couldn't believe what I was looking at. You know, it was just this bright, bright light. And uh, so I went back to bed. Now, knowing me, I would have been up looking out. the. Well, I did get back up. My wife, she was uh, about uh, eight months pregnant with our third son. And uh, so I was concerned about her. We, we, you know, I told her I said, "Please do not go down the steps. Just use the restroom upstairs." And she promised me she would. And, and well, she didn't have a reason to go downstairs except to check on the kids occasionally. So uh, uh, I woke back up and I noticed that uh, she wasn't in bed. And I thought, well, she's gone to the restroom. I'll give her just a minute. And uh, she didn't, she didn't come back to bed. So I got up. I looked in the bathroom; she wasn't there. I went downstairs. I looked in the uh, through the entire house that she would obviously have to go, and she wasn't there. And uh, I was walking back up to the bedroom. I go over to the windows, and I look out, and I got to say, what was what, what kind of light was coming in? And I look over across the field, in a vacant field, and all I see is a city of green red lights white lights and it looked to me like a second shift or third shift that's working and that's why that's over there it was almost as if i'd convinced myself that's nothing it's just a somebody working all night go back to bed i go back to bed and when i wake up that morning my wife's there now why would i have not i would have never gone back to bed if my wife was missing eight months pregnant there's no way but something convinced me to go back to bed. So that morning, I finally got a car started. We had three cars. And on one of them, I, I finally got the car started to go get some eggs that morning. And uh, I said, I'm going to look at that vacant field and see if there's anything there. There's got to be a factory there, from what I saw. And when I looked over in the field, there was nothing there. I go back home. We fixed breakfast. The company says, "I can't." Says, "What's the deal about these dogs?" We saw this light. I couldn't sleep, you know, hearing these dogs all night long, and uh, we pretty much forgot about it. And I didn't even think about it. This is another thing strange, Ted. I didn't even talk about it or think about it for ten years after that, until, well, maybe six years after that, Um, and. All of a sudden, we were watching, my daughter and I heard the uh, story coming on with Whitney Streber, Communion, and I said, we've got got to watch this. This will be interesting, because I'd read the book. And as we were watching the movie, there was an event that happened when his wife, the same similar situation happened, except it was with Whitney, you know, and I was like his wife, you know, being subdued somehow by whatever was going on to not get up and that's when it hit me and all those memories came back
0: that's amazing you know and and, and there's a lot of folks that have had similar circumstances way way too many mm-hmm. uh... to to discount and to say well this is just you know sleep paralysis this year sure. well, i've it, heard
1: all those experts uh... sleep paralysis uh... i've had sleep paralysis and uh... It's just sleep paralysis, but uh, these events there was no sleep paralysis it was uh, uh, there, there was something going on, and uh, I was totally conscious I, you know a lot of people say, well, maybe you were thought you were doing this and you were just having a dream, but uh, you know the company we had over uh similar to what uh, Whitney Strieber's uh, account was, where they had company over that night, and all they wanted to do was just leave and get out of there. And, uh, shortly after breakfast, our company did the same thing. They just wanted to leave and get out of there. How well, can you blame but them? What I mean, happened that, that night.
0: A, I'm sure they had a very strange feeling and a sensation. I mean, things like that going on tend to they leave.
1: They never came back to spend another night with us after that. <laughs> we tried to tell them it's okay. We're not, you know, if, but it, you know, we, uh, I, I really do, uh, uh, I think there's something going on. Well, I know there's something going on. It's not a matter of thinking. Yeah, you know, I'm past the point of the UFO sighting. I'm, and I know, and I don't want to be, you know, trite with that. Uh, but, you know, I want to see physical evidence. I'm more, you know, I guess from my background, I like to see. I would love to see physical evidence you know know, i I, i'm glad though you related you know but unfortunately i haven't
0: seen anything like that Uh, i i'm glad you related the the story though of what happened to you because it somewhat explains to the audience your interest in the subject because once something happens uh it gets your attention and and you you know you you tend to look up more than you ever have before that wraps up this edition of radio disclosure a special thanks to our guests Emmy Award-winning science reporter, Linda Moulton-Howe, and physician, Dr. Bailey. Stay tuned next week, same time, same station, for Radio Disclosure. As a shortwave radio listener, you know there's no such thing as a good indoor antenna. If you're looking for an antenna that allows you to pull in those distant signals and also gets rid of the atmospheric noise... You need a good outdoor antenna. But in a lot of cases, folks can't have an outdoor antenna. Now you can. Transworld Antennas is the name of the company. The website is transworldantennas.com. Go to their site and check out the TW2010 or the 4040 or the 8080 for that matter. These are all antennas that will increase the sensitivity of your shortwave radio It gets the antenna that receives outside of the indoor environment, away from electrical noise, the pops and cracks and things that go on inside a building, and they hide. The TW2010 just literally disappears wherever you put it. Folks don't see it. And it's a good antenna for your receiver. It's a good match for any shortwave radio. If you're having difficulty pulling in those distant signals, Or if you're looking for a portable antenna that you can take with you wherever you go, you want it to be low profile, you want it to be stealth, where you can set it up and nobody really knows it's an antenna, this is the antenna for you. Go to the website, transworldantennas.com. That's transworldantennas.com. And get a TW2010, a 4040, or an eighty eighty. Whichever model best suits your receiving needs. You'll be glad you did. Transworldantennas.com.